In the decade following the Civil War, settlers' claims over Indian lands in the American West turned deadly. Every death, every killing was almost face to face. Coming up, Daniel Sharfstein tells us about the battle between two distinguished men in American history, Reconstructionist leader General Oliver Otis Howard and Chief Joseph of the Nez Perce. We'll hear how their conflict over identity and citizenship still echoes in the nation today. Economic Necessity has recently created a new group of wayfaring Americans. Journalist Jessica Bruder joined the ranks of the itinerant RVers and campers to see how they make ends meet by traveling the country to find temporary work. It's an incredible culture and a really, really resilient, creative, fiercely independent, and protective culture. The risks and rewards of American nomads and what the Nez Perce War can teach us today. It's all in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. There's a new type of migration happening all across the United States. Coming up, we'll meet a reporter who joined the ranks of the people who crisscross our nation in vans and trailers to perform low-wage temporary labor as a way to make ends meet. Let's open today's Travel with Rick Steves with a look at the struggle to define who gets to claim the American dream as it played out in the years following the Civil War. In his latest historical narrative, Thunder in the Mountains, Daniel Sharfstein outlines the conflicts and ironies between a Civil War military hero, General Oliver Otis Howard, and Chief Joseph of the Nez Perce Indians, who tried to persuade the U.S. government of his people's rights as citizens. Daniel, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show. So I tried to set up the context of the book there, but can you just explain the story that you tell in the book briefly in Thunder in the Mountains? Sure. The Nez Perce War in 1877 was a conflict that the U.S. Army fought against several hundred Nez Perce families in far northeastern Oregon and then across the Snake River Valley in Idaho who were refusing to move onto a reservation. The Nez Perce families fought the cavalry in north-central Idaho, and then they retreated into the Bitterroot Mountains and engaged in a three and a half month long strategic retreat that went from Idaho into Montana and then along the ragged border between Montana and Idaho along the Continental Divide, down through Wyoming and across the newly created Yellowstone National Park. And the Nez Perce families took some of the first tourists there hostage And then finally, they cut straight north through the Buffalo Plains of Montana, trying to get across the Canadian border to Sitting Bull. This was a year after Custer's last stand. That puts it in an interesting context, because we have vivid images of Custer's last stand, and then Chief Joseph and his band. And Chief Joseph, you know, his band, their circumstances were very different from the circumstances that gave rise to the Sioux Wars and the Little Bighorn Campaign. But just to go back to the whole Oregon uh, confrontation, the settlers there, they they believed they had rightful claim to that land on the fertile Wallawa Valley. The Nez Perce said, no, this is ours. And uh, push came to shove, and the army's chasing the Nez Perce out of there. It's, It's quite a sad story. But what gives it poignancy, the leader of the American army was kind of a champion of civil liberties, wasn't he? I mean, he was a, a big shot in the Freedmen's Bureau. Exactly. Oliver Otis Howard had been a West Point graduate and was fighting in the Civil War, lost his right arm in 1862. And in the course of fighting, 
really through the entire war, he encountered countless men, women, and children who were escaping across Union Army lines and proclaiming their freedom. Every conversation that he had with these people who were escaping to freedom confirmed his strong sense of the fundamental equality of African Americans. And after the war, it was only natural that he be chosen to lead the Freedmen's Bureau, which was the first big social welfare agency in American history. It was responsible for helping four million newly freed people navigate the path from slavery to citizenship. You know, if we think about that moment, the Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th and 14th Amendments boldly pronounced liberty and equality as defining American values, but never gave those concepts precise meaning. You know, these were concepts that had to gain meaning every day, and the Freedmen's Bureau and Oliver Otis Howard had a crucial role in that process. So, you know, for Howard, he poured a tremendous amount of resources into African-American education. He tried to redistribute hundreds of thousands of acres of confiscated rebel land, although President Johnson rescinded that policy very early on. And he was someone who believed fundamentally that African-Americans deserved an equal spot as American citizens. And when a new theological school for African-Americans in Washington, D.C. was proposed at the end of 1866, Howard said, no, it has to be a full university with a teacher training school and a liberal arts curriculum and a medical school and a law school. And it was named for him Howard University. This is the Howard that Howard University was named after, which is emblematic of hope and progress and freedom and equality for black Americans. Yet he ends up chasing Native Americans. Do you think much about what was his motivation? Was, was he just doing his duty and somebody said, okay, we have four million newly freed slaves, you need to motor this, and now we've got a group of Indians that won't give their land to the settlers, and you've got to motor that. How can one man be so exceptional in what seems like diametrically opposed initiatives? It's amazing. If you read Southern history, Howard is portrayed as, I'd say, a flawed hero. But if you look at Western history, he's much more of a villain. So trying to reconcile those two Howards hmm. was a big preoccupation for me over the course of the years that I spent researching this story. And to some degree, it was about doing his duty. But I think it was more than that. Howard was someone who was a deeply religious man. And he really believed that he had been put on earth, that God had put him on earth for a reason to do great good in the world. And he thought that Reconstruction was it. You know, that was the purpose that had revealed itself, the path that had opened up. When Reconstruction failed and when the Freedmen's Bureau collapsed, I mean, it's an amazing thing. What do you do when, you know, the thing that gave everything leading up to it meaning falls apart? I think he headed west and, you know, he rejoined the active duty military. He was given command of army forces in the Northwest. And it was almost like a, an exile. You know, he was sent to Portland, Oregon, about as far away from Washington, D.C. Hmm. as you can get and still be in the continental United States. And he thought this would be a place where he could find redemption. You know, he hadn't been able to redistribute land to African Americans, but he could establish 
Native Americans on small plots, turn them into farmers, and he thought that would lead to a path to equal citizenship. And he believed the alternative was war and genocide. And to him, this was a far more preferable and what he hoped would be a peaceful path. So he tried to make a peaceful, happy ending with Chief Joseph. He had some sort of high-minded ideals when he got into that challenge? Absolutely. You know, okay. he, he, he had negotiated a peace with the Chiricahua Apache Chief Cochise in the Southwest right at the end of Reconstruction. You know, he had become kind of a lightning rod for opponents of Reconstruction, a very controversial figure. Hmm. But that was a moment when he got some of his best press in years. We're learning about the Nez Perce War of the 1870s. Uh, this is uh, Travel with Rick Steves, and our guest is Daniel Sharfstein. He teaches history and law at Vanderbilt University in Nashville. And he's written a book called Thunder in the Mountains to tell about what he discovered about the conflict when the pacifist chief, Joseph, and the Civil War hero, Oliver Otis Howard, ended up at odds. We have more on this subject in the notes for this week's show, and you'll find that at ricksteves.com radio. You've got a man that is deeply religious. His mission was Reconstruction. That fell apart, and then he finds himself looking for another mission that is in keeping with his values. He goes to the Northwest, and we've got this new kind of parallel challenge in our country as uh, the Western movement is encroaching on Native American rights. And he encounters this Chief Joseph. Tell us a little bit about the personality of Chief Joseph, because when you think about famous Indians from the late 1800s, you got Sitting Bull, Geronimo, Crazy Horse, they're all famous for fighting. But Joseph was different, wasn't he? Joseph was a man of ideas, and fundamentally, he wasn't a soldier, he was an advocate. So when settlers, white settlers, started pouring into the Wallawa Valley in the early 1870s, Joseph had a choice. He could have gone to war, or he could have retreated into the mountains, but he took it upon himself to try and change the course of American policy. He had been told that there had been a treaty that had been signed in 1863 that had ceded the Wallawa Valley to the public domain, opened it up for settlement, but his people had never been a party to that treaty. So he decided to try and reach the federal government, try and communicate that his people had not been a party to that treaty and their title had not been extinguished to the Wallawa Valley. That's a, a tall order for a man who was about 30 years old. I mean, it's almost as if he's just standing up and saying, hey, this isn't fair. And there's a government, and they're trying to throw us off the land. And he actually had the awareness to think fairness matters, and he would speak out within the system of the encroaching white settlers. That's different than, than a typical Native American response to white settlers, it seems like. How did he even know to do that? I mean, he sounds like... This is sort of setting the, the model of modern dissent. Hey, this isn't fair. We have a free nation. People have rights. I trace Chief Joseph's ideas and beliefs and his sense of the power of moral witness and dissent to a couple things. One is the Nez Perce peoples, the various bands, had signed an 1855 treaty. A few bands signed this 1863 treaty. There is an awareness of treaty rights and his people's sovereignty that really informed everything that he did. And when 
Indian agents wrote letters, their regular reports to the Commissioner of Indian Affairs. They would talk about what a strong treaty consciousness the Nez Perce peoples had. Was that a good thing, a treaty consciousness, or was that just meaning they're going to be big trouble because we have no intentions of honoring this treaty any more than it'll be helping our our mission? No, I I think that it was a fairly neutral statement. Uh-huh. I mean, I think that often the Indian agents were wary of the settlers who were trying to encroach all the time on Native American mm. lands. And those treaties and that sense that the federal government was bound to honor them that kept bands like Chief Joseph's band from going to war because they knew that they could turn to the government or they had that sense that they could. And it was a deep disappointment when the government did not follow through. So they saw the government as an arbiter between struggles between white settlers and existing Native Americans. In Joseph's view, yes. There's more with Daniel Sharfstein in a minute on the clash between two American legends, General Howard and Chief Joseph, and what the plight of the Nez Perce says to us today. Later, we'll find out about today's nomadic retirees who travel the country full-time in RVs and camper vans. Thanks for joining us. It's Travel with Rick Steves. We're learning about a defining period in the development of the American West right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guest, Daniel J. Sharfstein, teaches law and history at Vanderbilt University in Nashville. His first book, The Invisible Line, A Secret History of Race in America, explores the racial history of three American families and won a number of awards for narrative nonfiction. His latest book is called Thunder in the Mountains, and it explores the conflict between Chief Joseph and General Oliver Otis Howard in the post-Civil War years. It describes the 1877 Nez Perce War, which forced Indian migration out of Oregon's Wallowa Valley, across Idaho and Montana, and later to Fort Leavenworth and the Oklahoma Indian Territory, before survivors were allowed to settle on a reservation in eastern Washington state. If you don't mind, Daniel, take us to the end of the chase of Chief Joseph, and then he ended up in prison. What was the end of the story, basically? For three and a half months and over about 1,400 miles of this incredibly rugged terrain, the Nez Perce bands outran the army. But about 40 miles south of the Canadian border, they were overtaken and besieged. And many of the war chiefs were killed at that moment. One major leader was able to slip through the cordon and escape to Canada, White Bird. But Joseph decided to stay with the women, the children, the elderly people who wouldn't have been able to escape through the siege and make it to Canada. And he was the leader left over to negotiate once again, as he had before the war with the federal government. So it was Joseph who surrendered. In negotiating the terms, he was assured that his people would be able to move after the winter back to Idaho and onto the Nez Perce Reservation. But almost immediately afterwards, that promise was reversed, and they were sent to Fort Leavenworth for a terrible winter, and then finally to Indian Territory, what's now Oklahoma, where they were exiled until 1885. That was a hellish experience. It was a time when they had almost 100% infant mortality, and Mm. Joseph's young child, who was born right as the war was beginning, died in Indian territory. Mm. And 
people died of cholera and dysentery and malaria and of depression. There were numerous suicides. I can imagine the white forces, the army and so on, would have very little empathy for the reality of taking an indigenous tribe from one environment and putting it in another and not appreciating the challenges that that might present. We're talking with Daniel Sharfstein. He's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. He's the author of Thunder in the Mountains, and it tells the story of Chief Joseph, Oliver Otis Howard, and the Nez Perce War. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Michael's calling in from Houston. Michael, thanks for your call. Oh, sure. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, do you have a comment for Daniel? Uh, Yes, I actually lived, this has been several years ago, in north-central Oklahoma, where the Nez Perce were sent when they were uh, recaptured. I knew about Chief Joseph when I moved there, but I didn't realize that that's where the Nez Perce had been sent until I got there and read a uh, historical marker that, that told about it. And as the professor said, many many of the Nez Perce died there. And the area, I would say, is the complete opposite of where they came from. It's flat prairie. There are strong winds. Uh, it's sunny almost all the time. In the summer, it gets over 100 degrees. In the winter, it gets down to zero or lower. And I was just amazed that the government would move them to such a different territory before they finally moved them back to the Northwest after so many had died. And uh, I think one of the, you could say, more tragic aspects of this was that after they moved the Nez Perce back to the Northwest, oil was discovered in the area where they had lived uh, in Oklahoma. And so, you know, they were sent there and many of them died, but they were then again relocated before they had, you know, could gain the benefits of owning the land where that oil was discovered. Were they relocated because they found oil there and they needed to move them out? No, not that I know of. So it's just bad luck. They could have stayed and had the oil. The Osage Indians who also lived near that area, at, at one time after oil was discovered, they were among the richest people in the, in the country. Wow. Daniel, did you encounter that in your research? I don't know about oil in that area, but I'm not surprised. I, what I think is that what Joseph wanted more than anything else was return to the Northwest and really to the Wallowa Valley. They called the place where they were exiled in the Indian Territory the hot place. And... Hmm. There are poignant letters that Joseph wrote to different people and poignant testimony that he gave during this time. He actually wrote Oliver Otis Howard and said that he was considering embracing Christianity, trying to curry his favor and and his advocacy for a return to the Northwest. Howard responded rather coldly that he lived in the Indian Territory now and that he should make the best of it. Hmm. But he refused and, you know, he was told that they would be there forever and really through the power of his advocacy, forever was reduced to seven years. Michael described the uh, terrain in Oklahoma quite vividly. What was the terrain in Wallowa Valley in in Oregon that Joseph and his people dreamed of calling home? The Wallowa Valley is gentle rolling prairie. It's fringed by tall mountains. And you think that the prairie rolls on for miles and miles if you're standing there, but if you just take a few steps off the the beaten path, the earth kind of falls away into canyons that are deeper than the Grand Canyon, you know, Hell's Canyon, Mm. Snake River Valley. Mm -hmm. And being there and being in Nez Perce country, which is, you know, canyon country and 
these incredible mountains. You know, it's so interesting. You were just describing that to me, Daniel, and I was thinking, yes, I've been there. And then I remembered, yeah, and I was in a town called, I think it was called Joseph. There's a town mm-hmm. in eastern Oregon called Joseph, which is a jumping-off point, I think, for a lot of river rafting, and that's that dramatic territory. And I can see how somebody could be wedded to the idea of my people belong living here. Hey, Michael from Houston, thanks so much for your call. Sure, thank you, Rick. We're learning about the Nez Perce War of the 1870s right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guest, Daniel Sharfstein, teaches history and law at Vanderbilt University in Nashville. He's written Thunder in the Mountains to tell us what he's discovered about the conflict between pacifist Chief Joseph and Civil War hero Oliver Otis Howard. Can you wrap up this discussion talking a little bit about how Joseph was sort of the um, the voice of dissent and, and how in some ways he might have set the stage for people a century later who were speaking out for uh, issues of justice and then how this whole story might apply to us today as we're confronted with, with quite a divided nation in a lot of ways. I think in many ways we're, we're still fighting over the meaning of liberty and equality and the relationship between race and citizenship and the proper size, scope, and role of government. Now, these are, are battles that really took modern form right after Reconstruction, in Reconstruction's aftermath, and we live with that today. What's amazing about that, that moment after Reconstruction, those decades, I think, are, are crucial to the American experience and our experience today, is the extent to which people who were architects of Reconstruction contributed to the creation of the new regime. So we can think that Oliver Otis Howard sort of betrayed the values of abolition and union and reconstruction when he played a a serious role in helping conquer the West and, and build this new regime. Joseph, in his protests before the war and after the war, especially after the war, he made a plea for liberty and equality that is very modern, you know, a plea for what every American can expect. And I sort of think of him as someone who revived those old values of liberty and equality, those old values of abolition and and the Northern cause. And he bridges them to the causes and concerns of a new century of civil rights struggles and human rights struggles. So today, 150 years later, if you were to sum up some of the fundamental challenges our country faces that are the same back then and and how Chief Joseph's message might apply 150 years later, what would that be? I think a big part of it is recognizing the pluralism of our country, the fact that there are many different ways of being American, and our American values should embrace that difference. I think a big part of it is recognizing that the government has a role not in policing the divisions and hierarchies of our society, but really in giving everyone access to a full package of rights as Americans. The role of government is to make citizenship unitary for everybody. There should be you know, one way, one expectation that Americans have for how freely they can live their lives. Mm. Wow, to provide a framework for citizenship, not to tell us what citizenship is, but a framework for us to find it and define it for ourselves and and celebrate it. One point that I make in the book is that Joseph had this 
sense that he sort of figured out how scattered American power was, how divided it was. You know, there there's so many far-flung bureaucrats, and what that meant was his cause was never actually over. You know, he may get an adverse decision from one set of people, but there's always someone else to turn to, hmm. and often persistence in that process. He was able to, to leverage that into rights. Hmm. And, you know, I see the, the Dakota Access Pipeline protests as part of a set of struggles that, you know, in our way of governing and our way of making decisions, it's a kind of struggle that, that never really ends, that you lose on one front, but there are so many other fronts to, you know, wage these battles and, and they just don't go away. You know, uh, Joseph sounded like he was pretty sophisticated for a, a person who never really had a, a conventional education to understand how the power worked in, in this massive government he was up against. I mean, I think he actually had a better sense of how things worked than Howard did. Um, <laughs> he, you know, Howard, for him, I mean, in some ways he was a military man to the core, so he would get a directive and say, this is it, it's not subject to negotiation. And, you know, Joseph's response to that was basically, says who? Because his experience was people kept telling him that the Wallawa Valley would be closed to his people and that they would have to move to the reservation. And he would make his plea. And every answer he got from people was that, you know, they were just one bureaucrat 2,500 miles from the Capitol right. and had no power to change anything. Huh. And yet, time and again his case kept getting reopened and he kept having all these different successes even when everyone told him he would fail. Daniel Sharpstein is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. He explores a definitive period in 19th century America in his book Thunder in the Mountains. His website is danieljsharpstein.com. Did Joseph and Howard ever actually sit down together and talk face to face over a table? Several times. So they knew each other. They were adversaries. It was like uh, they were an ongoing kind of uh, duel here. Well, it, you know, initially Howard thought that it would be a friendly interaction just like every other interaction he had had with Native Americans, at least to his mm -hmm. mind. You know, Joseph's people didn't give any real cause for alarm. Uh, you know, they had been at peace with the United States for 70-plus years from the time that Nez Perce bands saved Lewis and Clark when they stumbled out of the Bitterroot Mountains onto the Weipe Prairie, freezing and starving. They were saved and nursed back to health by Nez Perce people. Hmm. And since that point, you know, into the 1870s, the Nez Perce people had prided themselves on never shedding white blood and prided themselves on their, their close and warm relationship with the United States government. It's interesting that there's all those struggles going on in a time that today, I mean, you think you just don't recognize the complexity and the poignancy of things happening 150 years ago in our country. Daniel, to be inspired by history and then to learn from it is, is so important, especially, I believe, these days. And, and you've done such a, a beautiful job of focusing on a slice of our history and our heritage that really doesn't get the attention it, it might deserve. Can we finish with just one spot? Pretend you're my tour guide and you want me to get excited about this story and to empathize with the struggles and the importance today. Where would you take me and what would we see? One incredibly powerful site 
that I encountered as I traveled the entire Nez Perce Trail was the Big Hole Battlefield, which is right by Wisdom, Montana. The Big Hole Battle was a moment when the U.S. troops ambushed the Nez Perce families at dawn, early August 1877. They massacred women, children. It was a really horrifying moment. You go there today, and for one thing, you can see why the Nez Perce families camped there. It was a, a really calm, beautiful place along the Big Hole River. Nez Perce families had camped there thinking this was a, a place of, of leisure and peace. And when you go there, the locations of the Indian camp uh, are approximated with frames, lodgepole frames for the teepees. You see these spectral frames and you look at the, the hills from where the troops came from, and you get a sense of the possibilities that, that the Nez Perce families were hoping for and the ideals that they were trying to defend. You also get a, a deep sense of the, the horrors of the struggle. And you also get a sense of just how intimate the killing fields were. Nez Perce warriors, when they were remembering this fight, and Nez Perce women and children who also remember this fight, when they described it, they described recognizing people who were shooting at them. And I thought this was something that, you know, how can you really recognize someone in the middle of a battle? But you realize that the space that people were fighting in was so tight that mm. every death, every killing was almost face to face. Wow. To be standing there even with no context, it sounds like it'd be a, a beautiful moment, but to have that context, to, to understand the story and, and to go there, gives it poignancy, like, like I just think would, would really be rewarding. Daniel Sharfstein, thanks so much for being with us, and thanks for writing Thunder in the Mountains. Best wishes with your teaching. Thank you, Rick. Do not misunderstand me, but understand me fully with reference to my affection for the land. I never said the land was mine to do with as I choose. The one who has a right to dispose of it is the one who has created it. I claim a right to live on my land and accord you the privilege to return to yours. Professor Sharfstein includes photos of the people he writes about in Thunder in the Mountains on his website at danieljsharfstein.com. What have you learned or observed in your own travels? Send us a haiku poem about it. There's a link for sending us yours in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Here's some examples of what our listeners are writing. Leo Watson from Rochester, New York, enjoyed visiting in an area of Bulgaria where time-honored traditions are practiced early in the day. In Plovdiv's Rose Valley, pick the petals before the sun dries their love oil. Celeste Sanford from Kentville, Nova Scotia, paints a sunrise scene for us. First blush of sunrise sweeps across quiet water then bursts into flame. And Bruce Wang from Rockville, Maryland sends us this haiku from the fjords of Norway. Radiant sunrise ascends over Sonjafjord. Slumbering trolls snore. You can call them travelers, nomads, modern American gypsies, or even work campers. Jessica Bruder tells us about her time among the people whose retirement years are spent in RVs and trailers crossing the country not so much for the pleasure of a road trip, but to find seasonal work to help them afford to live. 
we'll hear what it's like to survive 21st century America in Nomadland. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-RICK. An extended road trip can be an exciting way to get a change of scenery. But for some Americans, living on the road in an RV or trailer is part of what's required to survive. Many of them look for temporary and seasonal work because their diminished income after retirement just isn't enough to live on. Journalist Jessica Bruder got to know this itinerant workforce up close. For two years, she logged more than 15,000 miles in her own converted van and stayed in campgrounds and worked alongside them. Jessica profiles the people she met in her book, Nomadland. Jessica, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Whoa, what a phenom here, this Nomadland. I I didn't realize there's a whole parallel society of people who are generally older that are working to subsist, moving from place of employment to place of employment in RVs. What, What is the basis of this? What is going on in our country where we have this sort of change in the economic design of things, especially for people in their golden years. Yeah, all sorts of stuff is going on. I mean, when I used to see RVers, I just assumed that they were the last of the great pensioners going to Old Faithful or Niagara Falls and just tootling around and enjoying themselves. But the more I learned when I started looking into this is, if you think about it, we've seen so many things that have made it difficult for people to retire happen in this country. We've seen pensions give way to 401ks which put a lot of risk on workers rather than on employers. We've seen the Great Recession decimate people's savings and often basically just cause the housing equity they plan to retire on evaporate. We've been in a culture where for such a long time wages have been stagnant. I mean, our federal minimum wage is $7.25, which still blows my mind, Mm -hmm. incredibly low, while the cost of housing are increasing Consequently, people who don't have a pension to support them, uh, cost of housing goes up, but their income doesn't go up. Their income probably goes down, and they end up homeless, looking for work to supplement a meager Social Security. What do people make per month uh, on Social Security? Oh, it's all over the map. I believe the average is around 1200 but I met people who are making 500 or less. So you can't live on 500 a month. So no. that, that sort of helps out, but you've got to get out there and at 750 an hour or whatever you can manage supplement that. Absolutely. And for people who are lifetime low wage earners, since Social Security is based on your lifetime of wages, people just, you know, they're not going to get a break once they're older. In your book, you call it give up the stick house and hit the road and search Stick and brick is what the RVers call it. Is that right? Stick Stick and brick. brick. Yeah, to distinguish that from their homes. So these people will not call themselves homeless. They call it houseless. And that makes perfect sense to me because they've got transportation and shelter. You just brought something up earlier, Jessica, about There's no more pensions, but now there's the uh, 401k. Explain the dynamic of that. What was the situation with pensions? What is it now with 401ks? Why was that change made and and what the consequences? Unfortunately, I think it was a pretty cynical move and it was marketed as 401ks were marketed in the 80s as an instrument of financial freedom. This kind of you pick your destiny, you're free, go forth, Americans. But when pensions were the rule of the land, they were made on basically a defined benefit sort of schedule. So you knew what you were getting. It was up to the employer to make sure that you got that. And really, under the guise of freedom, that risk was outsourced to the shoulders of the worker as 401ks became the rule. So if you're an impoverished older person who wishes you were actually retired with an income, you could feel like you've been scammed out of your pension and into 401ks that doesn't do it for you because you never made enough money to put that away. Yeah, 
absolutely. Is it and a I, triumph for the employers? It's absolutely a triumph for the employers. And it's part of the erosion of the rights that the labor movement has won for us over the past decades. I mean, who who remembers the 40-hour week? It already seems quaint, right? I kind of feel like retirement is going the same way. And So what's going on with retirement now? Because retirement used to be a different thing than it is today. Today, uh, Americans over 65, a lot of them still have to work. Yeah. And we're living longer and longer. And a really interesting phenomenon I saw, too, was a lot of older single women on the road. And when you think about it, again, because of the gender wage gap, women's lifetimes earnings lower than men. So they get less Social Security. They spend a lot of time out of the workforce doing unpaid labor as caregivers. They live longer than men. So it's pretty incredible. There's a lot of solo women out there. So there's a lot of people looking for temporary work to supplement their Social Security check that can't afford a home, and they're living out of an RV. Roughly how many people are we talking? Okay, so this is a really challenging number to address because everybody is quote-unquote domiciled somewhere. To get by in America, you need an address. You need it for your driver's license, your insurance. So I would guess just anecdotally, based on things from employers, we're talking at least tens of thousands, and that's a conservative estimate. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with journalist Jessica Bruder right now, and uh, she's written a book called Nomadland. Surviving America in the 21st Century, in which she chronicles the lives of the new American itinerant workforce, the elderly. Her website is jessicabruder.com. That's spelled B-R-U-D-E-R. Jessica, how did you get into this? And tell us about how you learned about this once you were inspired to go out and write this book. I'm a journalist. I do a lot of reading. And back in, oh gosh, it was 2011, there was a really scrappy paper, the Allentown Morning Call came out with a report about temperatures rising to 110 degrees in an Amazon warehouse. And instead of putting in AC, they had ambulances outside to pick up people when they dropped. And a year later, I was reading more about warehouse work. And there were one paragraph, two paragraphs tops in this article where somebody said, hey, I'm in this Amazon warehouse because I'm here with a special program for RVers and I can't afford to retire. And the story moved on, but I didn't. I was like, wait a minute, what is that all about? So I learned more about the program started doing a ton of research and found out that this program Amazon runs called Camper Force was just a small part of a much larger ecosystem, thousands of employers coast to coast and up into Canada, hiring this incredibly mobile population in an environment where the mainstream workplace, these folks might face a lot of ageism. And suddenly here is a network of employers that's welcoming older folks with open arms. So let's talk about that a little bit, because uh, if you are an employer and you hire a temp worker, there are some advantages. Uh, they don't organize. You're not dealing with unions. You don't have a, a lot of uh, perks and benefits you've got to give them, certainly no health care. And uh, it can be seen as an employer as a very easy way to fill the, the spikes in the demand of labor in your work economically. Absolutely. Uh, Amazon might have a huge demand for labor at Christmas time and less elsewhere. So all these itinerant laborers will realize, hey, this is the time to go to Amazon now. And then in the summer, it might be agricultural work or something like this. Give me the description of this, what Amazon would call camper force. Sure. But also it's worth noting that this is just a tiny part of the fact that so much of our workforce is going towards independent contractors right now. And why is that? Because it's so much more beneficial for the employers and an employer's market to not have to provide benefits of any kind and to have at-will employees where you really don't need any reason to terminate them. It's just the ultimate inflexible workforce. At-will employees. What does that mean exactly? 
at will means you can be terminated without cause. So many of these work camping jobs, the folks are working at will. They are told you will probably get X amount of hours a week. Mm -hmm. And often they travel great distances to reach the job. And if the employer decides that they're no longer needed or they just feel like cutting them, there's no obligation Mm. to deliver on the work. So what are some examples of sources of employment for itinerant uh, senior laborers? There is the Amazon Camper Force. That is something that exists in the four months leading up to Christmas, Mm -hmm. where people do pick and pack on 10-hour shifts in the warehouses. Make sure you've got good sneakers. You could be walking 15 miles a day or more on concrete, which is not so nice on an aging body. Now, would this be kind of a 9-to-5 shift, or do they do it at different times of day? I went undercover and did the overnight shift, which turned people into what they referred to as Amazombies. Amazombies. And this is like midnight to 8 a.m. or something. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it was all through the night. It was all through the night. So just one shift comes, another shift goes. Yeah, absolutely. The warehouse does not ever okay. shut down. So that's one big Christmas. big source of temp work. What, what are some other examples? There is the annual sugar beet harvest up in the Red River Valley. People work on ground crew. You're shoveling sugar beets out in the cold on a 12-hour shift. Uh, that's pretty intense as well. There are people guarding the gates for Texas oil fields. There are people doing campground hosting, which is a really interesting one because it looks very quaint and the jobs are often advertised as something that kind of feels like summer camp, like, hey, you're getting paid to go camping. But in this kind of camping, you're cleaning toilets three times a day, you're shoveling out fire pits, you're dealing with rowdy campers, Hmm. and you're only allowed to invoice for a limited amount of work hours when, in truth, you're on site uh, for many of these people, 24-7, because you're living there. So if somebody wants to buy firewood from you at 2 in the morning and they're banging on the side of your rig, good luck telling them no. How would somebody who's looking for workers spread their news, and how would somebody who's looking for work mm-hmm. network and, and know what's out there? Are there magazines? Are there websites? Uh, how does all this connect? Yeah, there's a website called Workers on Wheels. There's another site called Work Camper News. And they solicit advertisements from tons and tons and tons of employers. There's also just a huge word of mouth network. People who are work camping get together on Facebook and in all sorts of online digests. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jessica Bruder. Her book is Nomadland, talking about uh, the senior itinerant labor force here in the United States. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Nancy's calling from Sandwich in Massachusetts. Hi, Hi Nancy. I was just wondering, how did people view you or how does society view this? Like a vagabond or just, you know, normal people using a camper and traveling? Well, Nancy, it's really funny you use that word because I just remember when I met one of the women I interviewed for the book, she said, you're going to make us out to be a bunch of homeless vagabonds. So that concern of stigma is definitely there particularly with the ongoing criminalization of homelessness all over the country where people are being told they can't sleep in their vehicles in cities all over the place. So I think it really depends on what strata of the community you belong to and what rig you're in. I know a woman who lives in a van and was speaking to a bunch of folks in sparkly new RVs around a campfire. And when they asked her, what kind of rig do you live in? And she said a van, they actually left their own campfire. So there is stigma and there is prejudice out there. And I think depending on how old your rig is and what you're doing with it, it can be a real challenge. Well, thank you for your answer. Thank you for your call, Nancy. Adair is calling from Los Angeles. Adair, thanks for your call. Hi. Yeah, I'm wondering how many of these people might have considered becoming expats and moving to other countries. I'm sure they might not have the means to get to the other countries, but, you know, like Mexico has a lot of expats, and I know Cuenca, Ecuador is really high on the list. 
In other words, Adair, if you have a, a humble retirement here that doesn't quite pay the bills, you could move south of the border and live more comfortably on the X amount of money per month. Right. Uh, yeah, I'm just wondering if, if these people have considered that or did you get into that at all? And, and if you know much about the expat community around the world of American seniors. Well, I know it's growing and I think it's fascinating. And one little area of overlap, which isn't quite what you're asking, is I know tons and tons of people who go to Mexico to get their dental work done. People pretty much going there in caravans. But I think for a lot of these people, it's a matter of what the startup costs to actually get out there would be like that largely would put it out of reach. Mm, Okay. What about tiny houses? Well, in a sense, these are tiny houses on wheels. They're tiny houses without utility costs, without property tax. There's definitely some overlap there. And those tiny houses can roll to the uh, seasonal sources of income. Absolutely. Adira, thanks for your call. Thank you. The people staffing that farm stand or Christmas tree lot, or taking your tickets at a NASCAR race or carnival, or even selling firewood and cleaning toilets at the campground you're staying at, just might be some of the work campers Jessica Bruder writes about in her book, Nomadland. She's here on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us how they get by as a sort of underground community of temporary laborers and travelers. Jessica includes articles she's written about UPS drivers and Amazon warehouse workers on her website. That's jessicabruder.com, spelled B-R-U-D-E-R. And Jessica tells us about her 19-foot, 1995 GMC Vandora in a web extra to this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. You went undercover, and and you were sitting around campfires probably telling stories and sharing ideas with these people. In what way is it a culture? In what way do they relate to each other in ways that we might not? Sure. Well, for what it's worth, I never went undercover when I was just out there with people. I only went undercover when I was in a closed work environment, like the Sugar Beet Harvest or Amazon. Whenever I went and spoke with people and was out there in my van, they knew exactly what I was doing. Mm -hmm. They're civilians. (laughs) Right. I I treat them accordingly. But I've got to tell you, It's an incredible culture and a really, really resilient, creative, fiercely independent and protective culture. I was really impressed by it. So people get together online, but people also get together in person. And they, at one particular event that I attended for three years in a row as part of my research, uh, it was called the Rubber Tramp Rendezvous. And people are doing seminars teaching each other how to boondock, go off the grid in the national parks, how to stealth camp without getting rousted by police in cities, how to get affordable dental care in Mexico and often joining each other on field trips to go down there. How so to you could carpool it down to Tooth Town south of the border and better get your believe fillings it. done really The cheap. Molar City. <laughs> <laughs> the Molar. That's fascinating. You went to a convention, uh, itinerant labor convention, and they had all these, they're smart people that are living out of their RVs for financial reasons. They're brilliant people. Yeah. And some of them are working and others have just made their overhead so low that they can pretty much go financially dormant. There's a whole mix. Do employers provide kind of a campground for the trailers if, if they need to encourage more people to come? I mean, I can imagine an employer thinking, this is great, we need 500 workers. They would want to have a place where people could plug in Do they actually create these trailer towns that are temporary workforce hamlets? Yeah. So in the case of Amazon, they had briefly spoken about building their own, but I think found it was easier to contract with RV parks in the communities surrounding their warehouses. Mm -hmm. And and keep in mind, for some of these jobs, I was up at the sugar beet harvest. An RV park can be a bit of a euphemism for a field with electrical plugged in it. So basically, you need a place to park and plug in. And to plug in. That's all you need. That's what you get. Let's talk about the reality of people who, when you're in your 70s, especially when you're in your 70s doing 
hard physical labor in a lot of cases. Uh, you've got the reality of health care, and, and your, your body is falling apart, and you don't have more money, you have less money. What is the reality when you're 75 and going to work every day, standing and moving things around and hoping the employer doesn't notice that you're not able to do it physically uh, and that you're having to sign away your rights so you can't you know, complain to your employer that you got injured? What kind of empathy did you gain for people in this situation? Oh, a ton, because I've got to tell you, when I was out there undercover on a couple of these jobs, my body hurt, and I was 37 at the time. I met people who were, again, walking 15 miles a day on concrete floor and getting plantar fasciitis. I met people getting trigger finger from using the handheld scanner guns. I met people getting slip and fall injuries on the slick floor at the beet harvest, people getting hit in the head with uh, cardboard boxes at Amazon. Just It's incredible the persistence of these folks, and this is a generation that doesn't really abide complainers, so you're not going to hear them whine about it. They get up and do it again, and I think that's why the employers like them so much is because of that can-do attitude. Jessica, normally when we have an interview, I like to I like to end on something really happy and uplifting and inspirational. But uh, I don't know. To me, you got somebody who's seventy five years old and having to you know work from midnight to nine in the morning at some Christmas rush you know discount retailer, and then five years go by and you're not getting stronger, you're getting weaker, you're not getting richer, you're getting poorer. What is the end game? Is it is it only sadness? It's not only sadness, but I've seen my fair share of sadness. There are a couple people I talked to for the book who are no longer with us, and a woman I talked to all the time was recently parked next to an RVer who was having a tough time. He was also a bit older and low on cash, and she didn't see him for a couple days, and then there were flies on the screens, and she called the police, and he was gone as well. So while I have seen people get off the road... And I have seen people find other things to do. It's a really complicated picture. And I don't want to give away the end of the book, but it actually doesn't have a super depressing ending. There's something kind of cool and happy that happens, but I can't tell you what it is. (laughs) Well, Jessica, whether there is a happy final chapter or not, I just think it's really important that you've drawn, um, that you've raised awareness of this dimension of our country as we as a nation struggle to to give people the opportunity to work hard and, and have uh, dignity and self-respect, uh, especially in their, in their golden years. Jessica Bruder, the book is Nomadland, and thank you so much for learning about this and sharing it so eloquently. Thanks for having me here. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Isaac Kaplan-Wilner, and Kazmer Hall. We had help this week from NPR West. Thanks to Gretchen Strock for reading our listener travel haiku. You can listen again whenever you like and find out about our guests and the notes for each week's show. Rick also has an app for your mobile phone with self-guided walking tours to many of Europe's most popular destinations. You'll find it all in the radio pages of ricksteves.com. We'll see you next week for more travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. Europe Through the Back Door teaches the skills of smart travel. Travel as a political act adds meaning to the journey. And Rick Steves' best-selling country, city, and pocket guidebooks cover every corner of Europe. To learn more, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.